Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is, and it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. Thanks to all of you at home for being here tonight. We are starting in the state of Georgia. Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis has yet to say whether or not she will seek indictments in her sprawling criminal investigation into former President Donald Trump and his allies' efforts to subvert the 2020 election. But today, one of the grand jurors in that, Emily Kors, the jury's forewoman, she is speaking out. NBC News' Blaine Alexander sat down with Kors earlier this afternoon for her first television interview. And she dropped a whole lot of hints. Did the grand jury recommend indictments of multiple people? Yes. I will tell you, it's it's not a short list. I mean, we saw 75 people and there are six pages of the report cut out. So we're talking about more than a dozen people? I would say that, yes. Are these recognizable names, names that people would know? There are certainly names that you would recognize, yes. There definitely are some names that you expect. The grand jury forewoman telling NBC Today that the Georgia panel recommended that over a dozen people be indicted. A dozen is a lot. And on the one question that we are all wondering about, did the special grand jury recommend an indictment against the former president? Take a listen. Did the grand jury recommend an indictment of former President Trump? I'm not going to speak on exact indictments. Would we be surprised? Are there bombshells of who is being recommended for indictment? I don't think that there are any giant plot twists coming. I don't think that there are any, like, giant... That's not the way I expected this to go at all. Mm. I, I don't think that's in store for anyone. So nothing that would surprise people who have been following this? Uh, probably not. Um, I wouldn't want to characterize anyone else's reaction, of course. But, so that was something we heard a lot in testimony. Um, but probably not. It probably wouldn't shock you. I would not expect you to be too shocked, no. And that includes of the former president? Potentially. Potentially. It might. It's hard to parse that one out. Again, on the subject of a potential Trump indictment, Coors was asked today, this time by the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, about Trump's claim that the grand jury's report totally exonerated him. In response, Coors rolled her eyes and burst out laughing. Did he really say that, she asked? Oh, that's fantastic. That's phenomenal. I love it. So make of that what you will. We also learned in Coors's NBC News interview that Trump's former chief of staff, Mark Meadows, did in fact testify to the special grand jury for an hour and a half. This is information we did not know previously. Coors further revealed that many witnesses who came to testify before the grand jury did so having already been granted immunity. 
how many people came into the room to testify with immunity deals already in place? Maybe a dozen. In a series of interviews today, Coors also told the Atlanta Journal-Constitution that the panel heard more recordings of Trump phone calls. That is, in addition to his infamous call to Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, asking him to, quote, find 11,000 votes. This is what Coors said about those calls. We heard a lot of recordings of President Trump on the phone, declining to give specifics. It is amazing how many hours of footage you can find of that man on the phone. Some of these that were privately recorded by people were recorded by a staffer. Now, this is a person who volunteered to be the forewoman of the special grand jury, but did not vote in 2016. She did not vote in 2020. In fact, she told the Atlanta Journal-Constitution that she has never voted before, period. And until the grand jury proceedings, Coors had never heard the infamous call between Donald Trump and Brad Raffensperger. So getting inside her head to try and understand what she means by things like, I would not expect you to be too shocked when it comes to the indictments, or what might be a giant plot twist in this person's mind, or what might not be that is all very complicated. Because in addition to all the things I just recapped, Emily Kors also said things like this. My coolest moment was shaking Rudy Giuliani's hand. That was really cool for me. I, I made a point of, of stopping them and being like, wait, before we, before we go back to this, can I shake your hand? Because this is an honor to meet the guy. It was really neat for me. Okay. What we have in these interviews is a window into the thought process of a special grand jury that heard evidence in perhaps the most legally perilous investigation of a former president in American history. A special grand jury led by someone who has never before participated in the most basic part of our democracy, voting. Someone who, during proceedings, drew sketches of witnesses like Senator Lindsey Graham and former Trump aide Mark Short, and who swore in at least who swore in at least one witness. I am not kidding here. Holding a teenage mutant Ninja Turtles popsicle stick. It is worth mentioning that this wasn't just a jury. This wasn't just a grand jury. This was a special grand jury that was convened in large part to give the district attorney down in Fulton County the sort of political cover necessary to go forward with potentially one of the most explosive indictments in American history. And here we are. Joining us now is Michael Moore, former U.S. attorney for the Middle District of Georgia, and George Conway, attorney and contributing columnist for The Washington Post. Gentlemen, thank you for being here to understand what is happening. You know, I want to start, Michael, if I could start with you, just because you you have an understanding of the way things, you have a a granular understanding of the way things uh, play out in the state of Georgia. And what what do you make of Emily Kors, the forewoman from the special grand jury, coming forward and speaking to many news outlets, doing an on-camera interview with NBC News and saying what she had to say? Well, I'm glad to be with both of you. And, and the, the thing that struck me is that that's your jury. And and this is the, these are the type of people that are going to be sitting on that jury deciding whether or not to, to issue a conviction in the case. Uh, I, I was... Um, taken aback a little bit by the some of the comments that were made, and I think it's dangerous when you do that. Uh, and you talk about things that went on in the grand jury room. That's why the grand jury uh, process is secret. I realize here it's a basically an advisory panel. It's not the same as a 
criminal grand jury, but uh, it, it troubles me to hear the prosecutor's evidence out in the public like that before we even know which which people may be indicted and on what charges. Uh, and so um, I, I think it ought to be troubling to, to, to anybody. But but again, that's your jury. That's th- those people just like her are going to sit on that jury and make a decision about whether or not uh, to, to uh, convict somebody. And um, and that's that, that's troubling. Look, she didn't reveal anything that we didn't know. I mean, for crying out loud, I, I don't think there's any secret. Anybody looking at it can see there's going to be indictments. I mean, the three blind mice could see that there are going to be indictments issued in this case. So there's nothing new in, her, in what she told us. Um, but but you know, it's it's you're hearing it firsthand, and to hear things like I was taken to shake somebody's hand, or I trusted somebody to do this, or I, uh, you know, that's that's. Uh, it's unusual. And remember, we don't use special purpose grand juries in Georgia very much. Uh, we don't have investigative grand juries. We just have criminal grand juries that meet. Uh, you can use them. But again, this may be a reason that uh, the prosecutor should have gone forward with a very clean case, a very focused case, and not turned this into something, a year-long expedition where we now have uh, th- this type of information out there. It's not going to affect, there's no real motion that if the defendants, future defendants may file in the case, but it sure gives them a lot of fodder to yes. talk about in the camp, in the in the press to try to undermine the public's confidence uh, in the prosecutor's decision to move forward. And I do want to talk about that, but I don't want to lose sight of the fact. Now, Michael Moore is pretty sanguine about the fact that at least a dozen people may be getting uh, uh, indicted in all of this. And then this sort of strange psychological playing an armchair psychologist, which is demanded of us frequently in the Trump years. But on this count, particularly trying to get inside the head of this Poor woman who's saying there are no bombshells here. And what I'm trying to understand, and I would love your thoughts on this, George, is like, is the bombshell indicting Trump or not indicting Trump? I think all of us watching this know where this is headed because we saw the evidence from the January 6th hearings. We heard the Raffensperger tape way back in January of 2021. Um, this is all roads lead to Donald Trump. And it's, you know, we know about the fake electors. It's hard to imagine that he's not getting indicted and that a lot of people aren't getting indicted. And, and that was the inference that most people drew from the six missing pages in, in the, in the, in the nine page grand jury report. So in that sense, I agree with Michael. We're, we didn't learn that much, but there are still some tidbits in there that she probably should not have let slip out. And, you know, she was a little uh, cute when it came to the question of uh, Trump, right? I mean, she particularly with, I guess it was the AJC, the the, the newspapers, yes. and laughing, laughing, rolling, and her, eyes rolling her eyes. I mean, yes. um, you know, I, I can't blame her. I would have the well, it is the enormity of the task at hand yeah. for someone who is a, a sort of political neophyte, if you will. And yeah. I'm not trying to be insulting, but, no. you know, she's never done it. No one's really done it. No, like this she was before. enjoying herself a little too much. I think. Yeah. And, <laughs> and, but I, I guess in terms of legal peril, Michael, I mean, Fonnie Willis, the Fulton County D.A., has been very reluctant to talk about this case at all. There, She's sat for interviews, but she's really not divulged much. And, and this jury is important for her optically, it seems, right? I mean, she needs to sort of, they're a crucial part of public confidence if she goes forward with explosive indictments. And I, I just wonder if you think that if not in, in terms of the law, in terms of the sort of politics of all of this, whether that's been compromised by the information we have today in terms of Fonnie Willis's path forward. 
Yeah, I don't think she needed the grand jury for cover um, for any legal reason. I mean, she had basically a recorded confession from the former president when he made the call to Raffensperger. Her problem is political, in that she has spent the time and treasure of the people of the state of Georgia and Fulton County specifically to, to do this investigation. And so she needed this to be a serious endeavor. She needed it to come forward. And part of the reason is that there's been a spike in crime in Fulton County. And, and voters are going to be questioned, should we be catching the robbers and the carjackers versus, you know, tending to all this, the, these issues before the special purpose grand jury for the last year? Could we have used our resources somewhere else? So that's the question for her. She needed the she, she really needed the political cover here because she had a case. Um, but she used this, I think, to sort of weave a bigger net. Uh, and she's used this to try to get into things we've heard about RICO and we've heard about, you know, are we going to indict on a conspiracy? And we've heard all of these things uh, over the last year um, when she, in fact, I think, had a very clean case if she wanted to proceed that way. It's not to second guess her and it's not to armchair quarterback, you know, the, the proceedings over the last year. But it is to say that, you know, th this was not what I think she would want people to think about the work of the special purpose grand jury. Uh, and uh, this, it would help. And I think that she has, has since uh, doing some media appearances early on, that she has stopped doing it and talking about the case. And I think that probably will serve her well. And it would have served the grand jury well. You know, you keep your head down, you do, you do your case, you let the evidence and the facts take you where they go. Uh, and, and you speak only on, on things that might give the public just some information about a status. But to talk specifically about evidence or giddiness and, you know, this kind of stuff, I think is not what she wanted. Uh, I'm sure I, I, I say that. I mean, obviously, I've not spoken to her about it, but I, I can't imagine that she would have wanted uh, this to be sort of the, the, the face of, of the work of this special purpose grand jury. Um, George, the Trump himself has uh, tried to preempt any bad news by saying he's been totally exonerated on all of this. It sort of sounds like he might not be totally exonerated in all of this. Um, Although she didn't specifically say that Trump had been indicted, so he might take the similar, a similar position that Hi. She didn't say I was yeah, indicted, well, right. so therefore I've been exonerated. Right. She didn't I mean, say, I mean, yeah. Trumpian logic. Uh, <laughs> Do you expect him, I mean, the fact that she said she was enamored of Rudy Giuliani and that that was like an amazing moment yeah, for I, her. I don't think Do he's Do you gonna, think he's going to, I mean, he's someone that has weaponized very small yeah. things in the past. I mean, what is your expectation here? He'll weaponize whatever he can, and then he'll... You know, he'll say he'll he'll say inconsistent things. He'll say whatever comes to his mind at any given moment. And at the end of the day, I think this is a one day story. I don't think, you know, I think they may make a big deal out of this at some point in some in some papers. But at the end of the day, there's going to be another grand jury, as Michael mm -hmm. points out, the one that actually indicts a very important these people, reminder. Um, whether it's all dozen of them or whatever it is or not. And at the end of the day, they have to put on a case. The Fulton County Grand Jury has to, I mean, Fulton County DA's office has to put on a case. And if there are these other tapes, that's a nice little tip that we learned. Yes. Yes. If there are these other tapes and we know that there is this whole fake elector scheme, there's, you know, there is a multifaceted conspiracy here. It's just as the January 6th committee pointed out, there was just a multifaceted effort to overturn the election. And some of those facets manifested themselves in Georgia. And at the end of the day, that evidence that goes into the pettit jury, not the grand jury, is going to decide this case. Yeah. Michael, you know, when we talk about what what sort of bore fruit in, in the this impaneled uh, grand jury, the fact that George mentions there were tapes that we don't know about, 
Many right. of them, apparently. Now tell us more. Tell us more uh, for Woman Corps. Uh, that was really interesting. Mark Meadows, we did not know that he had testified before this grand jury. Uh, we did not know that um, many people, at least I think a dozen, were given immunity mm-hmm. to testify and were more more forthcoming in that testimony. What stood stood out to you as as most interesting in the breadcrumbs that were dropped? Well, I, I, I wasn't surprised at all to hear about the immunity to, from folks. And that is that, uh, you know, we, we've talked about the special electors and the scheme and, you know, this type of thing, this, the false slate of electors. And there was some litigation about that and who could and could not testify and who could have lawyers, the same lawyer and this type of thing here uh, in, in the state. So I really wasn't surprised about that. It was the additional tape, I think, that caught my attention or tapes as she said, and, and, and recordings and, the, and and what she was willing to say about searching uh, and finding other things and phone calls online and this type of thing. That, to me, is going to be interesting. Again, there's nothing that she did and nothing that she said that I think is will be a, a very successful tactical attack on any future case, should there be one. And I have told you, I think there will be. Um, but uh, she, she basically gave information and gave pieces of evidence and gave sort of an idea about the prosecution strategy early on uh, that that wouldn't be out at this point. And she gave a lot of fodder for things in court filings, uh, motions, whether they are meritorious or not. And certainly uh, she basically uh, put some extra batteries in the megaphones for the people who are likely to be uh, defendants. Uh, And she's given them some things to complain about and talk about and to, to diminish the investigation itself and the validity of it and the seriousness of the investigation and the grand jury proceedings through this. It has, if you think about the special purpose grand jury, they're basically just writing a recommendation. It's like getting a sticky note with, with some names on it handed to the prosecutor. It has about that much uh, uh, importance in her decision. She has complete discretion who she wants to indict, what she wants to indict them for. She doesn't have to do a thing with this report. She can put it in her file cabinet and never look at it again. Um, but this is what the public's hearing now. And so, you know, as a prosecutor, you want the public, especially in a case like this, to have confidence in your decisions as you're moving forward and and, and confidence in your ability to bring a case that can ultimately um, sustain a conviction and an appeal if it if if it goes that far. So, um, again, she she uh, uh, I think probably undermines some of the seriousness of where we are. Um, but nonetheless, you, you know, here, here we are, and I'm sure you're going to have defendants now or potential defendants and future defendants uh, wanting to hear all these extra tapes, wanting to know what other information was out there, wanting to know exactly what jokes were said to who who, and what, what they were laughing about in the grand jury room. And they'll use that as a way to attack the credibility of the, of the case that the prosecution puts forward. George, is Lindsey Graham um, sweating it out right now? Who do you think is most um, in, in the greatest peril, knowing what you know about who, you know, what we all know about who said what, who said what publicly? And I think Donald John Trump is. <laughs> you go back to the <laughs> all big roads go back to him. I mean, he's the one who is pushing, pushing Raffensperger on that call, asking for the precise number of votes plus one, um, ignoring basically everything that Raffensperger was saying about how there was a lack of fraud. I mean, he was the driving force behind this. And he was involved, as we saw in the January 6th uh, hearings, that he was involved with the fake elector schemes in the various states. And all roads lead to him. He's the center. He's the epicenter of the conspiracy. 
Okay, so that is not a plot twist, or maybe it is. Either way, it's not a plot twist. You think it's happening. Yes. Michael Moore, George Conway, thank you both for joining me this evening. Thank you for having us. Pleasure to be with you. It is. Thank you. It is a busy news night with a historic election for a vacant congressional seat in the state of Virginia. While Wisconsin voters went to the polls today to cast their ballots in a race that is crucial for the future of democracy in their state. Plus, Senator Bernie Sanders will be here live in the studio with me. We have quite a bit to talk about. He'll be here coming up next. You can live out your MasterChef dream when you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that. Hey, everyone. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. We believe in science, so we don't feel like we're being your guinea pig, but we don't mind proving to you that we believe the world. Okay. Here's to Caroline. Here's to you. Thank you. That was President Biden's EPA administrator, Michael Regan, and Ohio's Republican governor, Mike DeWine, drinking the water in East Palestine, Ohio today, where a train derailment three weeks ago dumped untold amounts of hazardous chemicals into that small Ohio community. Many residents are reportedly still experiencing symptoms like rashes and burning sensations that are consistent with exposure to dangerous chemicals. And they are skeptical about government's ability to both ensure their safety and hold the rail company responsible for this crash. That skepticism is not unwarranted. During the Obama administration, rail companies lobbied to narrow new safety rules governing the transportation of dangerous chemicals. One of the companies behind that lobbying campaign was Norfolk Southern, the company whose train was carrying the toxic materials that were dumped in East Palestine. And during the Trump administration, the White House rolled back those safety rules. Just last year, rail workers across the country threatened to strike in part over safety conditions. But rail companies successfully lobbied Congress to quash that strike threat without addressing worker safety concerns, even as rail companies lined shareholder pockets with more than $10 billion in stock buybacks. The residents of East Palestine are feeling the results of a decades-long battle between corporate powers and a democratically elected government. One of the elected officials who has spent his career focused on that very struggle is Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders. This week, he is out with a new book, It's Okay to Be Angry About Capitalism, in which Senator Sanders details the struggle against corporate influence in government in both major political parties and outlines his vision to fix it. He writes, the ruling class get their lobbyists to work on assuring that when policies and regulations are written, Congress and the state legislatures will agree to those that consolidate their advantages. By the time the average American catches on, the rules have already been rigged so that the rich get richer and everyone else gets left behind. When the oligarchs in the corporate world are waging class war against working class Americans, the working class needs a party that will fight back and win. 
Joining us now is Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders. Senator, thank you so much for joining me. Congrats on the book. Thank you very much. Um, I'm sorry that we still have to be writing about some of the same problems that have been entrenched, it seems, in American society for quite some time. I want to talk to you about just, you know, before we get to the substance of the book, although this has to do very much with that, what's happening in Ohio, right? It seems like it's the nexus of three problems that you detail in the book. The first is corporate lobbying, the strength of it in terms of shaping federal policy, workers' rights, which are consistently subsumed in the name of corporate profit, and health care for the most vulnerable communities in this, in this state, in this country. What should Democrats be doing at this moment as national news coverage is focused on this issue that dovetails with so many of the fundamental problems in American society? Well, it's interesting that this terrible derailment and accident took place just at the moment that some of us have been taking on the rail industry, mm-hmm. as you indicated, record-breaking profits. What we should add to what you said is that in the last six years, based on what Wall Street wanted to increase profits, they have downsized their workforce by 30% in six years. So you talk to the workers and say, we're asked to do more work with fewer people, and that causes safety concerns. That's what the workers have told us. And then on top of all of that, These rail executives who make zillions of dollars a year couldn't find it in their hearts to provide one day of paid sick leave for their workers. I think we have had some impact. The railroads are beginning to do that as a result of public pressure. But as you indicated, this is just another example of incredible Wall Street corporate power at the expense of workers, at the expense of a community Mm -hmm. in Ohio now and uh, the general community. I mean, the governor of Pennsylvania looks like he's looking at criminal indictments for this. I mean, what, what, is, the, what is the punitive measure that should be sought out at this we point? We have allowed these guys, and, and corporate America in general, that's what this whole book is about, to get away with murder. Mm-hmm. Year after, and it's not just the railroads. It's the pharmaceutical industry that charges us the highest prices in the world. They raise their prices, and you know what? People die. And they could do anything they want. And the government, well, they have 1,700 paid lobbyists, pharmaceutical industry, in Washington, D.C. It's healthcare. Yeah. You tell me, Alex, how in the richest country on earth, we're the only major country not to guarantee healthcare to all people. But good news, insurance companies make billions of dollars a year in profit. Yeah. All right. So what this whole book is about is taking a hard look at it's not just the rail industry. It's what's going on in America. And the bottom line is. Middle class continues to shrink. We have more income and wealth inequality in America today than we have ever had. Yeah. And we've got to address those issues. You, you know, you write at the beginning of the book that it's considered by some to 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 question the American power structure, to question the way the country is run is un-American. And it harkens so much back to the 1960s when there was this notion of like anybody who asked tough questions of those in power, who challenge the status quo. Oh, well, you're a flaming, like you're a flaming liberal. You can't be taken seriously. The true patriots, the true Americans abide the law. They wear the tie and they go about their day they questioning. They don't abide like, the law. They make the law. They make the law. And you can't have any criminal problems with these guys because they have made the, the law. law. Exactly. And they refused to, to ask questions about systemic injustices, whether they're economic, racial, what have you, right. is somehow, um, is is anti-American. And it feels like we're back. We're back having the same debate that we've had that we had in the civil rights era. I'll tell you something. As somebody who has had the opportunity 
to go all over this country. Mm -hmm. What makes me feel confident, I have been there. I have been to Iowa, and I've been to California, and I've been all over the state of Vermont. And you know what? Ordinary people do not agree with the ruling class of this country that the status quo is acceptable. Yeah. Go out and ask them whether they think the ruling class is protecting their interests. And people say, no, we want real change. Now, the problem is, how do you take on this big money? How do you take it on politically when billionaires can buy elections? Right? Mm-hmm. You want to run for office? I can put $100 million into the super PAC supporting you or opposing you. Is that democracy? I don't think so. We have more concentration of ownership in this country, all right? In sector after sector, whether it's Wall Street, transportation, whether it's, you know, pharmaceutical industry, a handful of large corporations, it's media. Yeah, yeah. We talk about corporate ownership of media much? Well, listen, I stand by what we put on the air here, you know, and we ask tough questions, but I, I want to, I would ask you in return, I know you have embraced social media as a way you, you, you write about it in the book as a way that you got your campaign message across. And I would say, do you, do you take issue with Facebook? Do you take issue with Twitter? I mean, their owners are not exactly free from criticism. Absolutely right. And that's a discussion we have to have from our perspective. We utilize what we could. Yeah. All right. But I think as a nation, You know, you're not going to be a vibrant democracy unless you have a vibrant media. And my view on media is not it's not Donald Trump's the people and fake news. I don't believe that for a second. You got serious reporters trying to do their job. Yeah. But I think if you ask people, are we really discussing the structural crises facing America? Why do we not have health care for all? What about three people owning more wealth than the bottom half of American society? And questions like that. We really don't have that kind of discussion. And look, I, I think that there is a limitation on what is discussed broadly in media, right? And that has to do with a lot of different factors, not just ownership, but also the way the, stru- the sort of structure of how media is funded. Right. Right. But I also think, you know, people have gotten disenchanted with yes, government, right? And, and, and you, in your book, you know, there is a note, there are continuous notes of optimism, but there's also, you know, the word angry is in red on the cover. Huh. And I ask you, how do you calibrate the, 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 you know, the sort of tonal dissonance between being at once really hopeful about the possibilities and really angry about the realities? I mean, how do you convince people not just to be angry, but to also be hopeful that things can change? That is a great question. I wish I could give you <laughs> a brilliant answer to it. I can't. That's a good question. Look, I can say two things that ordinary people by the millions, and this is one of the reasons why Trump became president. They don't believe what goes on in Washington anymore. They see people, we talk and we talk, and they say, you know what? I can't afford healthcare. I can't afford to send my kids to college. I don't have any paid family and medical leave. Cost of housing is going up. My schools are in Africa. You keep talking. What are you doing? Yeah. Why should I believe in democracy? When life expectancy in my community is actually going down while billionaires become richer. You guys talk, you don't do a damn thing. Mm-hmm. And then Donald Trump comes along. Yeah. Okay. So to my mind, what if we are really serious, and I know, you know, you talk, we just talked about it five minutes ago. If we're serious about preserving American democracy, government has to deliver for people. Mm-hmm. And in order for government to deliver for working people, you know what? You got to have the guts to take on the ruling class of this country which today has enormous economic power, political power, and media power. And you got to do that. And the Democratic Party has got to say, you know what, workers, we're standing with you. 
Okay, we are going to guarantee you health care. We're taking on the drug companies. You are going to be able to send your kids to college tuition free. You know what? We're not going to have a, a child care system in disarray. And you know what? If you're pregnant, you have a baby, you're going to have eight or nine months paid leave. So you can take care of your baby. Can I have those months retroactively? Yeah, <laughs> I have two of them. But they exist in Scandinavia. Yes. All right. This is not radical utopian idea. Yeah. So we got to bring our people together, black and white and Latino, to stand up for justice and have the courage to take on big money interests. Senator Sanders, you know, you are an inspiration to people who very much care about these issues and understand their importance. You are all business all the time, <laughs> which is one of the most Lovely, charming, um, impenetrable things about you. I don't know if you know that your seriousness has been captured on TikTok. I think it's from today. Do we have the video? Can we just show it to the viewing public? You're walking. There's some TikToker walking down the street, and there you are in the background, totally annoyed. It's like perfection. Yeah, that looks like you just got places to go. You don't have time for a TikTok video. And yet you're the best part of it. Um, Senator, thank you for your time. Congratulations on keeping us awake and doing the work. Thank you for the great job you do. Thank you. And good luck with book sales. (laughs) Much more to come tonight. President Biden is taking on Vladimir Putin as the invasion of Ukraine nears its first anniversary. What does winning look like at this point? We will get perspective from someone who witnessed Putin's rise to power in Russia. Plus, put this election on your radar. It is a little one with massive consequences. We'll tell you all about it. That's next. Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is. And it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Earlier this hour, polls closed in the primary for Wisconsin's Supreme Court. Voters are choosing between four different candidates to replace a soon-to-be-retired conservative justice. Now, conservatives on the court have a 4-3 majority right now. They've controlled the state Supreme Court for the past 14 years. And because of the near-constant deadlock between Democratic Governor Tony Evers and the legislature where Republicans hold a supermajority, justices on that bench have essentially become the arbiters on issues from absentee voting to public health emergencies to upholding the 2020 presidential election results. And tonight, the balance of that bench hangs, well, in the balance. To understand the gravity of even the possibility of changing the political leanings of the state high court, take a look at this map. This is considered one of the most gerrymandered maps in the country. It is Wisconsin State Legislative District map. This is the version drawn by the state assembly in 2021. 
In March of 2022, the Supreme Court decided Wisconsin could not use Governor Evers' preferred map. So this was the approved version, the one drawn by the state assembly. Let's take a closer look at two assembly districts in particular on their map. On the left are the old versions of these districts before they were redrawn by the assembly in 2021. On the right are their redrawn versions. Republicans won both districts in 2022, one narrowly and the other in a landslide. Skewed maps like these have suppressed the number of competitive state assembly seats in every election cycle. Because of rigged maps like these, Wisconsin Republicans have had almost a monopoly on the legislature. They've pushed Democrats into a smaller number of solidly Democratic blue districts and thereby ensuring that Republicans will always maintain a majority of seats. Here's a case in point. In the 10 closest state assembly races Republicans won in 2022, the margin was 7.5 points. For the 10 closest races Democrats won, the margin was 15.2 points. Now, we know that the state of Wisconsin is deeply, sharply divided along partisan lines. Four of the last six presidential elections were decided by less than a single percentage point. But the fact that year after year, elections keep resulting in a staunchly Republican legislature, that is a pretty good sign that something is off with the district maps. And Wisconsin voters could take a step towards solving that problem tonight. After their votes are counted, the top two vote getters will advance to the April 4th general election. There are two liberals and two conservatives on the ticket today. As long as at least one liberal advances, there's a good chance that that person might win in April, flipping the court to a liberal majority. If that happens, experts all but guarantee that Democrats will bring cases challenging those apparently fishy, redrawn legislative maps. And by the way, the courts also expect to weigh in on Wisconsin's zombie abortion ban that makes it a felony to perform an abortion except to save the life of the mother. Despite being dormant for the past 49 years, that ban went into effect last summer after the Supreme Court's overturned Roe v. Wade. That zombie ban has been tied up in the courts ever since. A liberal Wisconsin Supreme Court could ensure that people seeking abortions in that state are not totally barred from access. So a lot hinges on the balance of Wisconsin's highest court. And tonight is the first night we may catch a glimpse of where it is all headed. Coming up, it's democracy versus autocracy. That's next. Stay with us. One year into this war, Putin no longer doubts the strength of our coalition. But he still doubts our conviction. He doubts our staying power. He doubts our continued support for Ukraine. He doubts whether NATO can remain unified. But there should be no doubt. Our support for Ukraine will not waver. NATO will not be divided and we will not tire. That was President Biden today in Poland, making it very clear that he views the war in Ukraine as the decision of one man, Russian President Vladimir Putin. Biden used the speech affirming American commitment to Ukraine to create a sort of split screen for the history books, because also today President Putin gave what is essentially the Russian version of the State of the Union. And in that speech, Putin telegraphed that he is also planning to be in this war for the long haul. 
Putin announced that going forward, Russian troops will be allowed two week breaks from their military service every six months. And he announced that Russia will be suspending the last remaining nuclear arms control accord between Moscow and Washington. So what should we take away from this geopolitical theater? Joining us now is Peter Baker. He was the Washington Post Moscow bureau chief during the initial rise of Putin. And he is now chief White House correspondent, of course, for The New York Times. Peter, thank you for being with me tonight. I, I want to read you this this analysis uh, that was published in Politico earlier today about the way in which Putin is selling this war to the people of Russia. And it's short. Basically, these days in Russia, if the present is hard to explain, appeal to the past. And it seems like this is Putin's strategy here to recall the ghosts of World War II, to talk about the aggression from outside Russia. I mean, is that how is he selling this to Russians at this point? Yeah, no, that's exactly right. What he's trying to do is create the idea that Russia is under threat. That's why you hear him use the term Nazis all the time, right, to evoke that World War II sense of the invasion by Adolf Hitler in 1941. He's trying to reproduce that. He says the West started the war in Ukraine, as opposed to, of course, Russia, which sent in forces unprovoked just a year ago this Friday. He talks about NATOism which is sort of a, a bastardization of NATO and Nazism, equating in effect the Western alliance with the Nazis, the historic foes of the Soviet era. And so I think what you're trying to see here, what he's trying to do here, of course, is justify what he has done and to, to give an excuse to the Russian people for why they should be sending their boys, their their sons, their their brothers, their, their husbands into uh, battle in a country that did them no harm. And I think that's the uh, the situation here, because he, he he's, this has not gone the way he expected it to go. If there was going to be a president in Kiev this week, he thought it was going to be him, not President Biden. Yeah, for sure. He didn't think. And it, and it feels like Biden and Putin understand the sort of larger existential threats that are on the table here. Right. And that's why the U.S. sort of calibration over what weaponry we're sending over to. Oh, sorry. Over to Ukraine has been so careful. I wonder, though, if you think the rest of Europe understands the the sort of existential threats in the same way that apparently Putin and Biden do. I mean, it seems like they've had to sacrifice the most in terms of other, of course, than the Ukrainians um, and those Russian soldiers that did not want to fight the war. But the the for the Germans, for example, those countries that not, are not yet in NATO that are in danger of of, the, of increased Russian aggression, did they are they in it for the long haul? Do you think? Well, that's a good question. And it depends on the country, right? Why did Biden choose to go to Poland? Because Poland is. Poland and the other former Soviet bloc countries like the Baltics, like the Czech Republic, these are countries that saw what it was like to be under the yoke of Moscow during the old days. And that's why they are the most fervent on helping Ukraine defeat the Russian invaders, more fervent perhaps than the French and the Germans uh, who are further away, less threatened in the way that uh, the Poles and the Lithuanians and the Latvians are. So that's that's one thing. But you're right. That's the question is whether or not the Western Europeans, who have, in fact, had to endure a whole lot more than Americans have in terms of the cost of this war, will stick with it for the long run. They have had energy uh, you know, uh, issues, obviously. They get most of their, a lot of their energy, not most, but a lot of their energy from Russia. Uh, fortunately, it's been a relatively mild winter. That hasn't been the crisis that a lot of people thought it would be, but it has affected their economies. It has affected their trade. It has affected... Uh, their energy situations, and they've paid a bigger price in that sense than the United States. But they also understand, I think, that if you talk to the French and the Germans and the Brits, uh, they understand that this is an important epical moment, in effect, uh, in the East-West versus, uh, you know, uh, each other kind of struggle, and that there's something bigger on the table than even just the independence of Ukraine. 
What do you, the, the partisan numbers on U.S. support for this in, involvement, the funding to Ukraine, are stark. Uh, Democrats overwhelmingly support it. Republicans do not. Is the White House going to try and change that dynamic at all in the coming months, do you think? Well, I think that's one of the reasons why President Biden is there this week, to do exactly that. He goes to Kiev, he goes to Warsaw in order to speak not just to Putin, which is obviously one audience, and not just to the Ukrainians, which is another, but to his own audience back home in the United States, because of that very reason you just talked about, to, to tell them why it matters, in his view, that the United States is so invested in the Ukrainian war, because there is a fatigue factor going on. These numbers have gone down in the last year. In May of last year, I saw a number that said 60 percent of Americans uh, supported aid, uh, military aid to the Ukrainians now it's down to about 48%. And you're right, that's softening more on the Republican side than the Democratic side. And you see that playing out even in the emerging presidential primary battle on the Republican side. You see Donald Trump saying Biden, uh, you know, cares more about uh, Ukraine than he does the United States. And you see even Ron DeSantis saying that uh, uh, something similar. So you have this uh, where isolationist wing of the Republican Party started to speak out a little bit more. Kevin McCarthy was playing to them last fall when he said there shouldn't be a blank check in terms of future aid to uh, Ukraine. But then you have the more establishment Republicans, the Mitch McConnell wing of the party, which for the most part, I think at this point is still the majority in Congress, which still favors standing up to Russia, which, you know, harkens from the historical uh, position of the Republican Party during the Cold War, the, the party that took on, uh, you know, the, the Russian menace as they saw it at the time. And so I think that battle is starting to play itself out. It's going to be a really important one during this coming primary season. Yeah. And it's not just a sort of theoretical battle. It has real repercussions in terms of the global stage. Peter Baker, always great to see you, my friend. Thanks for your time. That is it for us tonight. We'll see you again tomorrow. You can live out your MasterChef dream when you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that.